Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, some explanation may be necessary. Some explanation will be necessary. Much explanation will be necessary. Um, all right, so uh, let me begin explaining. First of all, we're in New Haven today. We're in this is the first time I've ever used these uh, new Gateway uh, Community College studios. Uh, we are doing The Nose, which is our weekly cultural roundtable. Uh, the song that you just heard is going to be part of our first conversation. Uh, it is uh, a gift given to us by the artists Lil Dicky uh, and Chris Brown. A little bit later in the show, uh, we will talk about the recrudescence, uh, with the ef- emphasis on the crude syllable, no, not really, uh, of Roseanne, uh, the TV show, uh, and the way in which it has kind of touched off a very interesting national conversation about who does and doesn't get represented on television, who we need to be looking at. Uh, and then lastly, we've gone to see uh, The Death of Stalin. Uh, it is directed by Armando Iannucci, he of In the Loop and most notoriously Veep. Uh, it is uh, sometimes referred to as a comedy of terrors. Uh, it is both uh, dark, as the Stalin era should be, uh, and also uh, a comedy in which various underlings um, feeling more or less empowered struggle with one another, curse one another out, vie for contention. I don't know if this is starting to sound familiar to you at all, uh, given uh, the It's sort of weird how the death of Stalin kind of, I mean, it, lo- it looks like the current White House, but it looks like so many other things as well. Anyway, it's all a wash in music that is, is either uh, Shostakovich and Prokofiev or something that sounds like that. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, at least I thought so. Anyway, uh, let me tell you who's here. Lucy Gelman uh, is editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH's radio's, I didn't do that right, Kitchen Sink, uh, S-I-N-C. Uh, Mercy Quay is founder and executive director of The Narrative Project. Brian Slattery is arts editor of the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. So why are we starting off with this song? Um, Partly because it's um, going to be, I think, something of a hit. It is debuting at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. Here at Public Radio, we pay a lot of attention to what's on the Billboard Hot 100. (laughs) Um, But also because uh, it uh, it does a Freaky Friday uh, transposition. Uh, The notion is that little Dicky, Mercy, how would we describe little Dicky? He is a cool Jewish rapper that's what i got for you all right but kind of kind of dorky but like that's what's cool about him right so yeah cool in a very dorky way Uh, the premise is that there is a a freaky friday style transposition so that he wakes up you heard me have heard him say that he woke up in chris brown's body you may have heard him except that obviously that has to be chris brown who's singing that so complicated uh there's a, a fair amount of 
um, of rapping and singing about who's what it's like to be which race. Um, it's catchy, as you probably heard. There is like a separate conversation. Maybe I'll save this for like the second half of this uh, about whether it makes any sense at all to like or pay attention to Chris Brown. Yeah. Um, but but maybe let's before we close that. I mean, I'm intending to close that door personally <laughs> before anybody closes any door. Let's actually talk about the song itself. And Mercy, I, you were the one who really called it to our attention. Yeah. Why, why did you? Why, why do we want to talk about it? Uh, because so for the first time since uh, the Chris Brown Rihanna situation, I am now paying to, paying attention to Chris Brown, and it is regretfully so. But right, like I'm here, and, and I want to talk about it with you guys. <laughs> right. Um, and th- the way I came about it was actually I, I, every now and again I kind of uh, venture onto Chris Brown's uh, Instagram. Just you know, as a as a hate fan, and um, he had this he had the clip of uh, I drive this Ferrari and I'm light skinned black, and I was like, what what is this? What is he talking about? And so I went and looked it up, and then I discovered Little Dicky was a thing, um, and uh, I <clears throat> liked it. I liked it, and because Chris Brown is such an awful human being, I think the standard for for what would make me like him is um i don't even know i like he's it's so low right like it's so low since he is an awful human being uh and when i saw this and i was just like well you're you're sort of incorporating freaky friday here you're there's awful tropes throughout the entire song and i have to suspend any type of morality that i have to watch it uh the video especially but um it's fun it's kind of fun and it's a if it's a feel-good summer song too Hmm. Anyone else feel well, the same well, way? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't envy you having to like yeah, defend no. Chris Brown right now. Uh, well, so, we'll, so we'll circle back to that. that. But so, <laughs> so, Lucy, one of the things yeah. this song is kind of scraping its thumbnail against is something that we've seen in the past before, which is that each side of any subculture or dominant subcult- dominant culture and subculture, they're a little bit intrigued about what goes along with being the other thing. Yes. You can think about a Brian Cranston as Jerry Seinfeld's dentist who wants to be able to tell the Jew jokes, but he's not Jewish. So he converts right. so that he can tell the Jew jokes. Uh, I think in the very first episode, the very first season of Atlanta, there was a white DJ who came over and kind of <laughs> yeah. used the N-word with Donald Glover and got kind of a look from him. And then the next time he told the same story, two more black people, he dropped that word mm-hmm. out. He told the story identically, yep. but dropped yep. that word yep. out because he's experimenting with whether he can say that word and he can't. So I think that that's what this thing is kind of, that's the knife's edge that this thing, this song runs its thumb down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, you know, Mercy, I share a lot of feelings with you because I- Are you as conflicted as I am? I, I am as conflicted as you are because I saw it and I was like, oh, this is funky. This is weird. I'm someone who really liked Flight of the Concords, which I don't mm. think is totally, totally different. It's not, um, you're right. But do you think was totally before its time? Mm-hmm. And so I saw this and I was like, oh, they're kind of doing the same thing. But Colin, you're you're absolutely right. It's this discussion of what can I say? What can I say? And we've seen some songs come out. I, I'm forgetting the title of it, but it's something like I'm not racist or tell me I'm racist. So it's a it's a song with um, a black guy on one side of the table and a white guy oh, on one yeah. side of the table. Oh, and they're not transpo- a well-known author yeah, at all. And they're transposed. And it was going around sort of social media a couple weeks ago. And I think... 
there's still that conversation of what can I say? What can't I say? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in New Haven, we're seeing that very much right now, or we did see it a couple of weeks ago with Eric Triffin, a professor at Southern Connecticut State mm-hmm. University, and the question of when is it okay or is it ever okay? And I would say no for a white person to use the N-word in yeah. conversation. I mean, I have that same conflict. I, we saw it five minutes ago when you guys were talking about Seder and you said Jew. And I was like, can I say Jew? <laughs> yeah. Ira Glass had this right. conversation. Now right. I still don't know if I can say Jew. Right, yeah. right. He right. has he has a shtick where mm-hmm. he stands and he says, like, you look at me and you see tall Jew. And, right. you know, and I can say that, like, oh, you look at me and you, you see short Jew. Um, can you say that? I don't know. It gets kind of dicey. Yeah. I, I, I always add the ish because it makes it an adjective. Yeah. Bluish, <laughs> Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brian, I don't know if you fully weighed in yet. Well, I think that like this conversation about what people can and cannot do usually comes up. It doesn't come up if the thing that you're talking about is really good. Mm. It only comes up when the thing <laughs> that we're talking about isn't is like kind of OK. And it, it definitely comes up when it's really bad. And, you know, so for this one, the fact that we're even talking about it at all is an indication that maybe this song is just okay. I mean, this was one of those songs where I listened to it and I just thought, like, I wish this was more fun. It's like, it's a little more cheeky than actually fun. And I say this as somebody who likes really fun things, you know, and that's, uh, you know, so I sat there going, you know, I see that you're trying to push some buttons, but, you know, they've been pushed before. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, I'm so disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody's allowed to. I, I yeah. no, I agree that it is a completely catchy song. It is, yeah. and, and you know, it. It. I mean, it's also kind of like if you think back. So I don't even know how many years ago. It's probably like six or seven years ago. A lot of people were into the Lonely Island. And oh songs yeah, that's like super, yeah. songs like I Islands. just had sex right. that are not that interesting actually. Right. But when they great actually. Yeah, but, so. well, <laughs> but when they come out, they're really really funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're yes. catchy and and sort of even the use of auto tune I think is meant to be. Funny, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, oh, that's yeah, that's sure. Chris Brown's real voice. Just uh, throwing that out there. <laughs> um, but also, uh, that that's also a little Dicky Stitch, right? He's right. he's a funny rapper. He, I mean, nothing actually. In in I think he has a song called um, on his album Professional Rapper. He has a song called I'm a Professional Rapper, and it, he's going back and forth with Snoop Dogg about like Snoop giving him a job, and Snoop's like reading his references. He's like, oh yeah, no, I was a big business major and I grew up in a really good neighborhood right that's his whole thing that he doesn't right. identify with his lifestyle at all we should say speaking of giving people jobs uh, this uh, uh, musical effort also features Ed Sheeran yeah and I believe Kendall Jenner I'm not too good yeah. at keeping these people somebody's straight. got a really good Rolodex <laughs> serious that's, so, you know but I think we have to now like put our foot on that middle rail uh, and that's that whole question of Chris Brown with his uh, long history of violence towards women mm-hmm. um there was what well, you said at the beginning. You uh, had mostly been hate watching his Instagram feed and kind of taking maybe <laughs> a permanent vacation from Chris Brown. Yeah. Here in an era where we, uh, I think, delete uh, people from our cultural uh, radar screen for smaller offenses, mm-hmm. there is kind of a question to me: like, if Chris Brown, if it's if it's ever going to be okay to watch a 
pretty much unrepentant Chris Brown too and enjoy him. I, I, I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling mm. how, about how that can be. Sort of like, right. is there a way to guilt-free watch Chris Brown? Well, I'm just also wondering, like, I don't know, Jonathan Schwartz isn't on the radio anymore mm-hmm. and I don't even know what he did. He like yeah. made people yeah. uncomfortable because he said stuff a certain way, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and no, it's true. You Meanwhile, know, I mean, there are actual photos of Chris Brown choking people. Yeah. Right. Yes. And, and right. I mean, yeah. So Like last week. Like right. last week. Yeah. <laughs> people in certain areas, I mean, obviously right. Chris Brown were hosting an NPR show. He would have been gone a long time ago. But um, right. but there are people in various walks of life who are you know either being boycotted or I mean Matt Damon was boycotted and protested because of an interview he gave about other people's stuff. That's yeah. like how yeah. easily yeah. you can get in trouble right. these days. And Chris Brown gets to punch people in the face and without any apparent consequences. I have no idea how he became unfallible, and I and I also don't understand how his career has survived. Mm. Mm. Yes. It's, right, like in ways that other artists. I haven't I mean even Bill Cosby's career hasn't really survived his right. run in with me too um but I mean in the process of hate watching uh his Instagram you have you know he reposts uh, comments from his fans talking about how Chris Brown can do no wrong, and I'm just like, actually, he does a lot of wrong, well, many wrong. daily. Yeah, he <laughs> has done <laughs> <laughs> right. kind of the definition of wrong. <laughs> like, he redefines right. it for us every week. Yeah. Lucy, I'm I'm wondering if maybe what I'm doing, the mistake I'm making, is kind of conflating two different things, which doesn't entirely explain things. But the Me Too movement, uh, to some degree, is about policing workplace behavior, uh, movie set behavior. Um, uh, things like that, and, and other kinds of workplaces as well, where people are sexual harassers, where they make people make people's lives uncomfortable and difficult, where maybe they go a little bit farther and take their pants off and and invite people mm-hmm. to look at things. Uh, you know, I mean, Charlie Rose coming to the door mm-hmm. naked. Nobody yes. wants that. Um, whereas other people are criminals. <laughs> like when you Straight beat somebody so badly yeah. that they look like Rihanna in those photos. Right. Yeah. So, and, and maybe Me Too isn't really set up to deal with people who are actual criminals. Maybe, although, you know, you can say some of the Harvey Weinstein stuff and certainly the Bill Cosby stuff. Yeah. Those are crimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So, may, so maybe right. we need to kind of segregate those two different categories or something. Oh, I mean, I, like even, and I'm, I want to hear Mercy's take as well. Um, e- I'm, even within that, it's complicated because as I was watching this video, it, it was sort of like, oh, haha, this is funny. But then the creepy crawlies come out and they, they start, uh, you know, creepy crawling all over your body because you feel gross yeah. about watching this and maybe even having a chuckle or two chuckles at it. Um, you know, as far as the question of, like, do we need to separate out those two movements? Mm. I think we're still figuring out Me Too. Like, I, I think we are mm-hmm. so in Me Too right now that we're still figuring it out. Um, and there, I mean, I've heard really discussion, really interesting discussions on, on one end. Has Me Too gone too far? Is there sort of hypersensitivity to it? On a totally other end of the spectrum, do we need to go even further because of microaggressions in the workplace? And so I I do think we're still figuring that out. As far as whether or not um, we should feel okay about watching artwork produced by people who really are perpetrating violent, violent mm-hmm. crimes, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's okay to feel gross. And I would hope, actually, that someone would feel maybe a little bit gross and reckon with this a, a little bit as opposed to just saying, I'm enjoying this, I'm mm. going to roll with it. We, we have to go to the slattery standard. Are you able to express <laughs> I thought your slattery standard was so, really good. So for what it's worth, like my <laughs> sort of, the, the way I've been sort of, you know, sorting through all of this is that I, I have this idea that the art needs to be 
better than the artist isn't good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if that's if that's mm-hmm. true, then I'm then I'm kind of okay with it. Um, this hasn't been seriously tested. I should I should say like there. I mean, I have my it's, idols. It's a, it's a beta theory. It's a beta yeah, theory. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Like, right you know, now. we I, I have my I have my sort of artistic idols, and if I learned that they were like truly horrible human beings, I would I'd be pretty. Yeah, that's what in the email, for yeah. example, you said like, what, what, Prince, what would it take? Prince. Prince yeah. yeah, what would have to if come out about Prince D'Angelo or was, Prince? Right. Yeah, yeah. If I learned that D'Angelo was like a serial rapist, I would have some real soul searching to do. But yeah. I also thankfully may I don't not think that's surprised. actually the case. Whereas have you seen giving up Chris Brown the, giving up Chris Brown is a cheap date with your conscience. That's right. Yeah, I don't do mind giving easy. up Chris Brown. You know, like that's in, that was an easy one to get rid of. Like I I I don't think that this song is better than Chris Brown is bad. Yeah, no, no, no. I and I think that's a fine standard um <laughs> you know and i i think for me it's kind of it, it's and nostalgic the thing is, is like, for a time I mean, when chris brown worth, was innocent for um, what it's worth i mean i'm i'm someone who at one point gleefully sang an r kelly song in oof. public which i regret now so that standard yeah. has changed you yeah. know it's, it's but at it's that a, moment i'm an evolving human at that being. moment you believed you could fly um, <laughs> it was a different song, oh, right. so but I, there I are also like moments in, in <laughs> there are also moments in the video that like yeah. I struggle with, right? So a few months ago, maybe a year ago at this point, there uh, Chris Brown had a run-in where the cops were surrounding his home because he was holding someone hostage at gunpoint, and in this video, little Dicky in Chris Brown's body pulls out a gun and is like like oh, juggling it and puts it back into its box, and I'm just yeah. like that seems like a poor ref, right? It, it, none right. of this feels comfortable to me and well, I don't want to laugh at any right. of it. If Chris Brown took any of that stuff seriously, it would be. Right. All right. So we, <laughs> right. I think we have a, a clean segue sort of uh, to the other uh, topic in this segment and, and that is uh, the rebuilding of Roseanne uh, which resulted in 18 million people uh, watching this week. That in this day and age is a very, very large uh, audience. Uh, this, uh, as you know, is a resurrection of the fabled Connor family of the 90s. Uh, and uh, it reunites uh, most of them. Most of them are just uh, sort of aged into their new roles, although, as Roxanne Gay pointed out, um, uh, they don't really age the way poor people age. Uh, they age the way people who have access to <laughs> yeah. Hollywood stylists uh, and really good, good medical care age. Uh, but anyway, they've aged <laughs> in there. And, and there's there are new uh, elements. There are There is a new young character with gender present- presentation issues, uh, as we say in New Haven. Uh, there is uh, a child who is either either um, uh, fully black or half black. I don't think that's really kind of been spelled out yet. Um, but the, the other thing we, it has is a new fan. Uh, and that fan, for good or ill, would be the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Even look at Roseanne. I called her yesterday. Look at her ratings. Look at her ratings. I got a call from Mark Burnett. He did The Apprentice. He's a great guy. He said, Donald, I called just to say hello and to tell you, did you see Roseanne's ratings? I said, Mark, how big were they? They were unbelievable, over 18 million people. And it was about us. They haven't figured it out. The fake news hasn't quite figured it out yet. They have not figured it out. So that was great. And they haven't figured it out, but they will. And when they do, they'll become much less fake. <laughs> May take a while, but it's happening. Our ratings-obsessed chief of state. All right, so, uh, uh, Lucy Gilman, I always forget that you grew up in the Rust Belt. I did. Uh, and so, in a way, um, for the, those of us uh, in the East Coast cognoscenti, uh, 
Roseanne maybe reverberates a, a different way. But I don't know. What do you what do you, what do you make about what's, what's happening right now, uh, and how do you link it to whatever Roseanne was to you back in the day? Uh, no, what's happening right now? Do you mean this current political well, uh, I mean, storm right. moment that like, we're in? And I mean, maybe I'll just go further. Just as you were saying about me too a few seconds ago, I don't think we really know what this particular Roseanne moment is. No. I mean, this is an attempt by the Roseanne show to present an America that kind of checks a series of boxes uh, of sort of problematic things. You know, I mean, it's not simply the representation, uh, notwithstanding what the president said, it's not, well, this is us. Well, it's us, but it's also some other people who aren't Donald Trump's version, emphatically aren't Donald Trump's version of us. And the question is, how are these white working class people going to deal with all these new arrivals? And we don't know that yet. We we don't. I'm, I mean, I think what you're getting to, I think you're getting to two different things, one of which you've talked before, which is that there's always nostalgia in the background, mm-hmm. um, especially with popular culture. And I think this show is fed largely by nostalgia. But it's also fed by um, a sentiment, I think. And so I think Roseanne has always been a show that is populist, but not partisan. Um, and, and by that, I mean, she's someone who like and, and we know from interviews that have come out around the reboot of the show, we know that she is now a Trump supporter. But when you watch the show, you kind of see someone who's on the fray a little bit, but who could go for Trump or who could go for Bernie, who's into an outsider, who feels very disconnected from what's going on on sort of on the East Coast and the West Coast and the American coast. Um, and I think there is an interest, whether or not it's misguided, I don't know, um, on in, in the TV networks and then more broadly, even in the media. You know, if, if you look at the New York Times, I think they hired relatively recently a religion reporter to go around the country and talk to people about religion. Mm-hmm. A like It was something like people reporter or a community reporter to go into communities around the country and talk to people. So I think that network television is also responding to the fact that like a lot of folks got something horribly wrong or misjudged something uh, by a, a huge margin and we're we're seeing an attempt to bring uh, folks into you know into a popular conversation and onto television uh, and in this case again who maybe aren't always represented. But I also want to say Roseanne originally was a show of first. There were a lot of lesbian characters on the show. And this was before, you know, the L word came out in 2004. Mm -hmm. This was in the 1990s. I think it was one of the first gay kisses on network television. Um, And I remember scenes that talked about interracial relationships when I wasn't seeing that in other shows on network television. I was also super sheltered kid. I didn't watch a lot of TV growing up. And so as far as uh, the silo that I was raised in that, you know, maybe that's way off, but that's where I was coming from. And, and I will, the one thing I will add is um, I watched the show because a very close friend of mine, who's been a very close friend of mine for over two decades also watches the show and the I I remember one of the first times he saw it he said my mama's on TV you know this mm-hmm. is like I'm I'm watching something where I see my family in this I know Brian what do you I'll just let you react react to that however you <laughs> however you want to yeah I mean I, I do think I I the, like Roseanne's quote in the in the in the New York Post article um, yeah, that showed up where she said you know I'm the same you all have moved is the one that really hmm. hits me you know that I think that in its original run, it it was it was just wasn't as um, it it wasn't 
partisan because we weren't as partisan. Mm. You know, it, and then and at the, at the same time, there was also this sense of like, I mean, growing up in upstate New York, there was for me there was always this sense of being just kind of forgotten by everything. You know, and that and that's that's you know, there's a, there's a way that there's a very long conversation to be had about how Appalachia extends from Georgia all the way up to the Canadian border, mm-hmm. and you know, there was definitely a sense of it all being left behind, including as long as we're on this. When Clinton was senator, I mean, she was basically senator of New York City, mm-hmm. and there was always this sense of like she didn't care about the rest of the mm. state, and her campaign reflected that. You know that she she was not somebody who was good at connecting with you know people outside of cities, and um, so to, to the extent that the Roseanne thing matters now, it's it's pretty cool because I think it's a great litmus test for how much things have changed. That now we can't just watch the show as a you know, an interesting show about a working class white family. We also now have to talk about it in terms of our presidential politics, right. which really wasn't part of the equation back then. And most definitely is now. I mean, there's there's a there's a really interesting way that Roseanne, as we talk about people being ahead of her time, like she's way ahead <laughs> in that sense. Right. And, and there's I mean, it's worth noting there are some maybe sharp divides between Roseanne Connor and Roseanne Barr. Roseanne Barr's Twitter feed is uh, frequently kind of offensively. Yeah. Uh, Trumpian. Right. Uh, and trades in some of the really kind of disturbing kinds of For memes. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think somebody was point, pointing out on, on point today that there was a, I was just checking the feed to see if I could find it, that there was, you know, David Hogg is Hitler or something. You know, there were, there's sort of mm-hmm. the kinds of things that, that come trickling out of the Twitter feeds of truly reprehensible people mm-hmm. are on our Twitter feed. But mm-hmm. that gets back to the question, the, you know, the art and the artist. Uh, if she mm-hmm. can create this show that's sort of a crucible for looking at some of these questions, then maybe we have something. Well, I mean, I think so. There's an interesting juxtaposition here, be, and, and I'll kind of pull it back to an artist that we talked about in uh, the first segment uh, briefly, Bill Cosby, right? So Roseanne came out, uh, the season that Roseanne came out, the Cosby show was in its like prime and was a great show. I mean, right, we're talking about a show about an upper middle class black educated family, and then Roseanne comes out to be the almost ex- like the antithesis of that exact thing. And so when we're talking about, right, um, separating the art from the artists, right? I think we're, <laughs> I'm sort of struggling with the same thing from uh, with Roseanne as I was or and am with Bill Cosby. Um, but Roseanne, I think, doesn't tr- ask you to separate her art from her, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like she doesn't, she doesn't ask you to do that, right? I, I think in some of her, um, interviews she's very clear that right she she wants the writers to be as true to life as possible it Mm. is a show named after the artist right in the same way that the cosby show was named after bill cosby right like even though the name of the family in it was the huxtables so I, i i just it feels like there is a i don't know there's there's this divide uh in um who's who's Who's, who's sort of watching, and I think, uh, Lucy, this is a little bit to your point, there's a divide in who's watching the Roseanne, uh, and I can't even say the original because this is really just like a, a reboot. This is yeah. like a continuation. This is season 10, mm. right? There's a divide in the folks who are watching Roseanne and the folks who are not watching mm. Roseanne. And I think it's the same divide that uh, that happened when it first came out in, what was that, 88? Mm. Um 
but but I also feel as though right. So half of my all my all of my in laws are in Washington, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, and Montana, and they represent right the Roseanne family. Right, my my the, their names might as well be Connor. Um, and I think what is interesting about rebooting a show like this in 2018, as opposed to when it came out what, 30 years ago at this point, um, is TV right now is really smart and not for. Uh, or seemingly not for folks who don't feel like they belong to the educated class, don't feel like they belong to uh, the upper middle class. Uh, so I think it's it's a it's a great way to kind of engage an entire group of folks who feel who may feel like TV's not for them today. Well, I think also Lucy, and you were alluding to this, and I think in your earlier uh, comments, there's a conversation we need to have as a nation that we don't know how to have no you know we're, yes. we're 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 really heavily divided i've been dealing with this on social media this week where you know when i i am i take a backseat to nobody in demonizing donald trump but i'm less comfortable blanketly uh demonizing all of his all of his voters mm-hmm. i'm and actually mm-hmm. super uncomfortable doing that. Yeah. yeah and so i, I, I mean, was saying to people this week on, on facebook there's 63 million of them. Like even Hillary Clinton said half of them were a basket of deplorables and the other half were people searching for answers, searching for change right. and, and not necessarily subscribing to the most disgusting premises uh, of the Trump campaign. I mean, that was people forget that that was the point of that basket of deplorable speech. Half of, half of them nasty, Islamophobic, transphobic, everything phobic. The other half just, you know, regular Americans, maybe not unlike some of the people you see on Roseanne. So I don't know if we can all watch Roseanne together, like 36 million of us, and then have a conversation about all that stuff. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm I'm down. I I think you're right. We're talking. We we do a lot of talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I think that's absolutely right. I I think also just not saying things like, oh, those people were voting against their best interest because immediately you've alienated That's someone like by the ridiculous. time you're yeah, saying yeah. It. That is yeah. the most ridiculous um, comment. But, but the number of, <laughs> of women, and I will say um, a middle upper class white women I've heard say, and I quote, um, oh, women who voted for Donald Trump, Trump were engaging in self-harm or they were not voting in their best self-interest. Well, that, I mean, conversation over, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you need to, I, I think that maybe in some universe this show could open up a conversation um i i like talking to people in the rust belt who voted for donald trump uh because they feel very disenfranchised and finding out what their issues are and listening to them not with a preconceived set of notions do i agree with them usually no Hmm. probably never um but i think we can definitely learn something there's something there certainly with one black character there are (laughs) they're they're already more diverse than friends uh all right (laughs) we have to take a a break so we'll have time to talk about death of stalin we'll do that Indeed, we are back. Uh, this is The Nose, and we are lucky to have here Lucy Gelman, Mercy Quay, and Brian Slattery. Uh, we went to the movies this week. Uh, we went to see The Death of Stalin. Uh, it is both a comedy uh, and not a comedy. Um, the uh, uh, characters uh, who include Michael Palin as Molotov, Steve Buscemi as Khrushchev, Jeffrey Tambor as Malenkov, um, have arguments 
uh, about who did what. Uh, everybody is very suspicious of everybody else, and everybody is very eager um, to. Oh, I just got told that I, I mispronounced. It's Busimi. I see. I never knew that. Um, everybody is e- eager to blame everybody else, uh, very much in the style of all Armando Iannucci uh, comedies, uh, but darker, darker, darker. Here's a little clip uh, where some of the people I just mentioned are trying to essentially blame one another. Sneeze on the bastards as they go past. Did you invite them? No. Ask Beria if he invited the bishops. Don't give me orders. Ask Beria if he invited the bishops. Did you invite the bishops? Yes. Yes. Well? He said yes. I'm going to give everyone in Red Square a voucher permitting one kick each to his stupid face. Is he asking for some delicious hay? No, he said something quite complicated about a voucher system. Ask Nikita, why in God's ass he invited the bishops? No, it, I, I've already explained why. You tell him. Never mind. All right, so we're uh, back. Uh, this is, uh, I think, during the funeral itself, and everybody is kind of playing a game of telephone where they're kind of getting the messages a, a little bit wrong. Uh, so, uh, Brian Slattery, I'll start with you. Um, <laughs> how, how did this movie land for you? Um, so there needs to be a little preface here, which is that at one point I had this job for three and a half years where I worked at a social science research foundation and read for three and a half years just about violence and about the awful things that people have done to each other through the through the centuries and across the world. So it had a lot of stuff about Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so this movie, kind of like the way touring musicians think Spinal Tap is more like a documentary than a satire, mm-hmm. I watched this movie feeling like this movie was very accurate. I, I didn't laugh mm-hmm. as much as people in the audience mm-hmm. did, but this was partially because the absurdity in it felt real. Right, like, which is the curse of, Arma- of Armando Iannucci. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, which is, I mean, I, I liked the movie. Mm. I liked it a lot, actually. And then, like, there are, there are parts of it that I thought were really good at getting at some very, like, subtle points about what happens when a sort of totalitarian regime mm-hmm. collapses and there's this kind of crazy struggle for power and no mechanisms in place to deal with it. Like, I, the, the, scenes that, the scenes that are sticking with me are actually some of the minor ones. Like, there's one where the... Shortly after his death and shortly after the officials leave um, his house, spoiler alert, Stalin dies in this movie, um, the, the, the soldiers immediately ransack the place. Yeah. Like they just, they're taking advantage of it. And not only do they do that, but they start killing each other, right. which is, is, well, accurate. I mean, I, I, mm. I can imagine there are people who would find that kind of shocking that they would suddenly turn each other or whatever it is. But there's this one scene where these two these two guards are sitting in the road watching a truck <laughs> pull away, and one just turns to the other and shoots him in the head. Right. And I was like, that is a very real <laughs> moment in this movie. And I, and I you know, so I, I uh, appreciate is a weird word to describe that mm. scene, but like, I really did appreciate how how. It, it felt like people had done their research. Yes. It, it, and I that, mean, it was great. I, I was very struck by that exact thing that you describe. Yeah. Uh, and, and the people, the truck is pulling away, so the two people, men standing in the road are getting very small. Uh, and suddenly one of them takes out a pistol and shoots the other one in the head. You don't even know who these characters are. If there's the, uh, the right. violence equivalent of a throwaway line, a throwaway yes. joke, mm-hmm. this is a throwaway And the way they handled violence, the, the way yeah. they handled violence on that sort of, it wasn't glorified, it wasn't moralized, it wasn't anything. It was just shown. I thought... This is really pretty remarkable. It's kind of background violence, right, Lucy? There's yeah. like one moment where a body just comes bumping down the stairs. I mean, it, it doesn't. Right. It's like in this back of the frame, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's sort of this sense that that 
uh, well, Iannucci has said that he actually dialed down some of the historical detail because it was too absurd. That he was trying to That's make an absurdist so movie. so believable. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to make an absurdist movie, but not that absurd. Right. Had to, yeah. Anyway, right. I don't know. What, how did this work for you? No, I, I completely agree with, um, with Brian. Uh, we saw it at the same time. And there were people in the theater who were howling. Mm. I mean, actually, just literally howling. And I didn't find myself doing that. But I found myself laughing and checking myself and laughing and checking myself because that's like that's where the magic of the movie comes mm-hmm. in you realize that this violence is is so absurd and yet so spot on and it's um it, yep. you know yes it's about a specific moment but it's also about what we in, inflict on each other um and and sort of it i i i think it felt timely even though uh i know that it it came out much earlier in the uk right yes it did in yes. october of 17 yeah, yeah. oh um, yes, it, but it does feel like t- Trump's White House, uh, where everybody's so. sort of scrambling around. I mean, the, the, it is a, mostly a story about a mad scramble for power right after the yes. death of, uh, of Stalin. Who's going to come out on top? Alliances are formed and, and then deformed in favor uh, of other alliances. Well, it, it also feels like it could that you could have made this movie about Iraq. You could have made it about yeah. right. Congo in the mm-hmm. 60s. You could have made it about like any number of regimes, you know, where the where this sort of thing happens where there's some guy at the top who's calling all the shots in a really arbitrary <laughs> and deeply personal way and then as soon as he's gone you go what do you do and <laughs> yeah I, but I, I also think that it needed to be Stalin right, mm. be, right it, he's the he's the like the er example exactly for I, having and, survived as long as he did and for the moment that we're in right, yeah. right the, the, the power struggle we're in right now with Russia it needed to be Stalin in order for it to be as impactful as it was I think my experience in the theater was very different than yours mm. um, maybe it was because I saw a matinee I don't know um, everyone was very <laughs> just quiet and observant and I was just like this is hilarious people laugh <laughs> yeah. and, and you know I'm, I have I'm like it's, it's a right I'm in the background tossing up my popcorn it was it was a hoot to me and i think so one of my um for no reason for no particular reason one of my favorite actors is rupert friend mm-hmm. um who plays uh peter something or another quinn quinn yes in homeland. <laughs> in homeland <laughs> who's one of my favorite characters on tv uh and i i actually think that peter quinn's character right that character mm. he play, uh, he plays vasily uh, stalin the, the the son of wastrel son exactly I, vasily, I, right? I think it ends up i think he right? definitely had a way of stealing some scenes yeah. Oh, yeah. exactly sure. yeah and yeah. one of the most absurd yeah. scenes that i think i really i stole the show in the theater was that struggle for the gun mm-hmm. and during Stalin's autopsy. <laughs> yes. It was so well done. And, and just again, like, so real. Yes. It's what? the whole like, who wants to interfere with Stalin's son? Because exactly. there's still that residual thing of like, well, Stalin's going to kill us if yep. we interfere with his right. son. Even though his head is open it on the table It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Those and old, and those that's, old that's a Lucy hard. moment too, that as you're watching it, you're laughing, checking yourself. Because right. something yeah. really horrible could be about to happen yes. right before I mean, even, even the, the, there's the scene before that. So before Stalin goes totally kaput, um, where uh, he is like gesturing and kind of garbling his sentences and the question is is he trying to name a successor <laughs> and you're going around the foot of the yes. bed and it's like is it the little old maid is it and it could be anyone and the it realization that it really could have been anybody right like, that's how yeah. personalistic the regime was. i mean and also that like he set up he set up an entire regime that made people so afraid of him that he, yeah. it led to in a right. really like in a real way it led to his death no doctor would perform 
uh, any anything on him, right? And it, all the doctors were either right. in the gulag or in jail or dead. Yeah, there, there, you, if you've ever worked <laughs> in any kind of organization where the person at the top ruled by fear, which happens in corporate America, For I've sure. been in these organizations, yeah. you wind up with a workforce that doesn't know what to do. The yeah. only thing that they know is that if they do something wrong, they'll be punished. They're out. Right. Uh, and, and so they, uh, <laughs> they, they can't make decisions. They can't even make the most tiny little everyday decisions. Well, and, and you see that, you know, long after Stalin's death, which is sort of comes at the beginning of the movie, you see that because they've all been so reined by fear, mm -hmm. even though they're close to the top, that they keep referencing, uh, you know, well, what it's like WWSD, what would Stalin yeah. do? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> And, uh, it, you know, and, and it's so funny that the, the original uh, letter in that acronym is J. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and For uh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, who has a very significant well, he day on Sunday. He should have copyrighted it then. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Um, what was he thinking? What was he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but it, it is like even as they are becoming, you know, ever more divisive, they have these moments where they stop and they say like, Oh, but Comrade Stalin. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it's funny mm -hmm. because Colin, I, I think you're right. You know, that that divisiveness and fear happens in the nonprofit sector too mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. And I've worked at one of those places and it's like you, you don't know what to do and you're so ill-equipped for any sort of change. Um, you know, and, and jokingly, I've been in a place where you call it a regime change, but it, it is. Well, except that those like the people at the top are definitely equipped for change. Like they've, they've been stewing on these ideas for years. And now but everyone all, out in the bottom, and they're all taking their shots. Completely know? disabled to make any, right. any right. decision. Right. Um, I, I do want to revisit the the point you made earlier, Colin, about um, the passing delivery of violence here. Mm. Even like the the fatal shot to the movie. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, yeah, this is history. But even the fatal shot to the movie was ha was done so quickly mm -hmm. that yeah. you're you're like that's that's the crescendo right that's it. and and it is what well, makes you realize oh, how much so movies good. telegraph their punches and how yeah. much they tell you what to yeah. think and all of that stuff that I deeply resent most of the time and <laughs> right. wasn't in this movie. I mean, I, we, we're going to have to break here. I do want to say, uh, Ian Uchi's that, I think one of the things he does, he breaks all of the rules mm -hmm. uh, of character and narrative and delivery of scenes but because, yes, the, mo the critical moments are delivered as afterthoughts. Um, he also creates an ensemble cast invariably, whether it's Veep or In the Loop or this movie, of completely unsympathetic characters. Usually you have to have Mary Tyler Moore or Judd Hirsch or you know, somebody. <laughs> somebody yes, in whom you what can cast. You what know, a cast in this This is a, has a tremendous cast, <laughs> but everybody is either spineless or disgusting <laughs> or violent or usually all three. A anyway, we have to take a quick break, so we'll have time to make some recommendations. We'll do that. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, with help from me, Kyone Wolf, Betsy Kaplan, and Joe Koss. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sting. On Monday, we'll be back with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. We're back here doing the news in New Haven with Lucy Gelman, editor of the arts paper, host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, uh, Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent, and a producer at WNHH Radio. So when they say that they know what it's like to work under a soulless tyrant, obviously they're talking about Paul Bass. No. Um, and and another one, yes. So Mercy Quay is a founder and executive director of the Narrative Project. They're all here with us. They're going to make some recommendations now. Uh, and so, Brian, why don't you go first? 
this is a bizarre recommendation, but I've been playing this game with people for the last couple of it's been like a month now. I was going to say a couple of weeks, but it's been a month. The month the, the game is think of a four run stretch that somebody has done like a, like a band, their four best albums that they did in, in a row. Oh, yeah, yeah. That they did in a row. I think I for, played this game. Did I play this game on your uh, possibly on your toy? the four best movies that they did in a row. Now, what's really fun about this game is that you build, you both get to revisit things that you like from the past, but in a very different way of sort of being like, but did they have a streak like that or did they just make a couple of good albums mm-hmm. or a couple of good movies or, or a couple of good books or whatever? And then the other part of the game that's fun is to say, like, who is on deck to be doing your next four mm-hmm. album streak? Mm-hmm. Did you invent this game? No, no, no. no. It was it, I, I should credit Don Donald Brown because we, we ended up, we got together at one point. But and it's a started, New Haven indigenous game. I have no idea. Which you play with sticks and beads. Yes, um, yes. The sticks indi- and beads indigenous and, people uh, in New and bottle so caps it, of Fox and Park I, Well, I played it somewhere, I guess probably on, yeah. on your Facebook page, and but it's, it's loads been, of fun. It's been super fun, and it's yeah. like, it, it makes you Think, in a headachey way, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, it ended up meeting that I pulled up Wikipedia constantly in a, like a four-hour conversation <laughs> right. about like, well, okay, who's the next one we can do? Right. If you and so, if, it's really. Fun. If you haven't experienced real fun, then this is fun. But yeah, if, like you know, <laughs> that's if right. you've Ever had any real fun? <laughs> yes. Then this is going to be kind of a little bit. But I, I did enjoy playing it. Yes. That's a great re- recommendation. Yeah. Lucy, what have you got for us? Okay, I have two quick ones. So the first one, the last time my partner was on WNPR, he endorsed me. Um, I'm going to do the second Aww. best thing, which is that I am. Um, so every every year on Easter, I, I bake for his family this year, Easter and Passover, the same weekend, which is either wonderful or horrible, however you want to look at it. So I am making like 50,000 macaroons this weekend, and I highly recommend this recipe by Deb Burl. Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. They're raspberry macaroons. You cannot mess them up. Um, they're wonderful. They're great for Easter. They're great for Passover. And I love you, Tom, if you're listening to this Aww. right now. Um, and and the other is a new album that's out from Anne Historic, which is the moniker for Adam Matlock. He's a New Haven artist. It's an uh, Brian, I would say, somewhat experimental accordion album called Something We Could Never Live Without. Yeah. It's beautiful. It mm, is lovely. Yeah. I've probably listened to it and, six and or seven times. And who's the artist again? Say the name. Uh, it's Anne Historic w- or Adam Matlock. And um, it is so, so lovely. You can find him on Bandcamp under Anne Historic. Um, support an independent artist. You can download it for five bucks. It is a really, really good investment. Hmm. Well, you're, you know, you know, we're not very accordion friendly show. We did our <laughs> accordion episode oh, last yeah. week. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Mercy, what have you got? Okay. So, um, I had three, and then Brian gave me the game, and so now I have four. Yes. Um, and because of <laughs> we're that, playing right now. So, first answer it. is Beyonce. Second answer is Kendrick. Um, and so I'm yeah. endorsing both of those in one endorsement. That is my fourth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, starting back from the top, uh, two books and a podcast. Um, if you haven't downloaded it on Audible yet, please do so. Um, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, um, narrated by him. It, and I mean, it's just it's, it's an amazing uh, tale of his life. Um, additionally, because I am a space nerd, um, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, <laughs> a, a man I have never met, but continuously call my father. If you meet him, don't tell him I call him my father. And if you meet my father, don't tell him I call Neil deGrasse Tyson my father. In fact, forget you heard this radio show. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's not an endorsement at all. Um, and... 
<laughs> my pod my uh, podcast endorsement is uh, Star Talk, which is Neil deGrasse Tyson's <laughs> podcast with um with Chuck Nice. Uh, it's hilarious. It is uh, approachable. Um, and it is, I think, authentically two things. It is authentically science, and it is authentically black, which usually don't see uh, share space in the same intersection. So I would uh, definitely suggest you check that out. So I'm always like looking for a way to reload myself with endorsements because I have to do them every week. But uh, so last week I didn't have to do any endorsements. I was in New York City. I saw four plays, watched one movie, and read a novel. So I like I feel like I, you know, I'm just teeming with uh, things that I could conceivably <laughs> uh, endorse. I am going to uh, first of all endorse the novel. It's called uh, A History of Wolves. The I think it's The History of Wolves uh, by Emily Fridland. Uh, it is a novel that takes place in the upper parts of Minnesota. Um, I don't even know how to describe it other than the, the narrator is um, kind of scout uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird, but like tougher, grittier, and maybe been through a lot worse things uh, than Scout. Uh, it's a just, uh, I, I, there's, I don't want to say too much about it. I just, I don't have time really to read very many novels for pleasure, not as many as I used to, because uh, I'm constantly getting ready for this show, which has kind of turned me into a moron. Uh, so it was a thrill to read this. And it was a thrill to read such a good novel, too. I was very hungry for something like that. So uh, The History of Wolves, Emily Fridland, I'm almost promising you that if you pick it up, you will find it hard to put down. Um, I'm going to introduce one of the plays that I saw, too. It's playing at the Public Theater, which is a good place to see a play because it's less expensive, and at least one of those plays turned into Hamilton eventually. This one is also set in the 18th century. It's called The Low Road. It's written by the same playwright who wrote Clyburn Park. Um, It is based oddly enough on uh, the theories of Adam Smith. Adam Smith is a character in the play who constantly speaks only to the audience, So, so there's Somebody as Adam Smith uh, talking to the audience all the time. And then there's this protagonist who has basically embraced Adam Smith's ideas, which are basically to pursue money and benefit for yourself uh, is all you need to do. That an invisible hand will guide everything to its proper destiny if everybody just sort of goes after what they want with minimal interference. He, therefore, is kind of a reprehensible character. He's a perfect Armando Iannucci uh, uh, character. Uh, And the play, it's really marvelously staged and really interesting and also was written according to the playwright more as a commentary on the 2008 um, economic meltdown uh, set as I say in the 18th century uh, but it, it works pretty well today too it, it seems to have an awful lot of things to say, say. so it's very very postmodern very fun uh, if you can get into New York it's at the public theater it's called The Low Road alright I want to thank everybody who helped out today uh, especially uh, Jonathan McNichol and Betsy Kaplan's down here too in our Gateway Community College studios, which had to be opened up just for us because Gateway Community College is closed because it's Good Friday. Uh, Thanks very much to the wonderful panel, Mercy Quay and Lucy Gelman and Brian Slattery. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Plenty to talk about. As a matter of fact, oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.